Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast, check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the monthly newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. In this episode, I have a thrilling chat with Jeff Notkin, a famous international meteorite hunter, and he's gonna lure you into the world of chasing meteorites. Our favorite NASA solar system ambassador, Ted Blank, is back to answer your questions, and we'll finish off with a naked eye tour across the night sky. Are you ready? Let's get to it. I first met Jeff Notkin in 2018 when I helped organize the Fountain Hills Dark Sky Festival. Our town had been certified as an international dark sky community earlier that same year, so we organized this tremendous event, and Jeff agreed to be our keynote speaker. Now I have a confession to make. I'm not much of a TV watcher, so I had never even seen the show Meteorite Men. Otherwise, I would have recognized Jeff as the celebrity that he was. Instead, I met him the night before our event when a handful of us went to dinner with him. And he was full of amazing energy and he was so personable and friendly. And I remember him spending the dinner with us as if we had all been longtime friends and he wanted to know about every one of us. Fast forward three years, and now I host a podcast, and I thought, I wonder if I could get Jeff Notkin to be a guest. His response was an immediate yes, and our entire conversation seemed like two friends talking about the convergence of the things they love the most. Jeff is an Emmy award-winning television host and producer, and he starred in three seasons of the television adventure series called Meteorite Men for the Science Channel. He also did two seasons of the educational series called STEM Journals, and he has appeared in numerous other television shows. He's a science writer and a meteorite specialist and a photographer, and he is the CEO of Aerolite Meteorites, where he's a leader in meteorite research and recovery. He's a member of the National Space Society's Board of Governors, and he's on the board of directors of the Astrosociology Research Institute. Please join me tonight in welcoming meteorite hunter extraordinaire, Jeff Notkin, to the podcast. So Jeff Notkin, thank you for joining us on the Night Sky Tours podcast this week. My pleasure, Vicki. Great to be here. So let's just start off with some basic definitions for everybody. People may have heard the words meteor, meteoroid, meteorite. And of course, your company is called Aerolite Meteorite. So what's an Aerolite too? Excellent. Well, it's very important to get your definitions correct if you're, if you're going to be in the meteor or meteorite world. I'm going to work backwards. I'm going to start on the surface of the earth. When a piece of celestial material lands on earth, it becomes a meteorite. And the phenomenon that we see in the sky, the shooting star, that's a meteor. So a meteor is actually an atmospheric phenomenon. It's not a tangible thing. So when people say to me, and this has happened many times, people call Aerolite Meteorites, the company, and they go, I found a meteor. 
And I say that's <laughs> highly unlikely and very difficult. You may have seen one. So, so meteorite lands on the ground. Meteor is the atmospheric phenomenon, a shooting star. But what is it before that? If a meteor is, is strictly an atmospheric phenomenon, what is making the meteor? And you could say the meteoroid makes the meteor. So a meteoroid is a mass of extraterrestrial material, stone or iron or a mixture of both, usually of asteroidal origin, that enters the atmosphere. So you could say that a meteoroid is a potential meteorite. So the, the typical life chain for a meteorite is asteroid, asteroid breaks up, fragment enters the atmosphere, is a meteoroid. To incandesce during flight, it's a meteor. And when it lands on the Earth and I find it, it's a meteorite. <laughs> and as you correctly noted, my commercial and educational meteorite company, Aerolite, is a meteorite related word that is actually an archaic word for meteorite and once i had a young a young collector message me on ebay and he goes he goes hey man i know what aerolite means so your company name is redundant aerolite meteorites really means meteorite meteorites now i love the word it's it's a it's a wonderful archaic word it's, it's not really used in language much anymore but sometimes if you find old museum labels or catalogs for meteorite collections, it'll sometimes say an aerolite weighing 500 grams was found in such and such a desert. And I, I, I just love that. So that was the, hence that is the origin, the first secret origin of the company name. So I have to admit before we had, before we started our interview here, I looked you up online and there's an actual Wikipedia page for you that talks about your pre-meteorite life which is very fascinating and it's very far removed from astronomy related subjects so what was uh, true first, what was your first experience with meteorites and what was it that like really shifted your career towards chasing them well i must say of course wikipedia is a pretty fascinating phenomenon in, in its own right and it is it is the collective output of people who are interested so there's a certain degree of subjectivity in, in what is <laughs> what is written. And I, I was very flattered when, when Wikipedia put up a page about me and I, I read it and I, I did say, well, it's odd that they mentioned that and it's odd that they didn't mention that. So let me, let me say, to set the record straight, let me say that my life has been a continuous, mostly good-natured battle between the arts and the sciences. And I discovered science, that being in particular rock hounding and astronomy and painting and drawing at about the same time, that being when I was approximately age five and growing up at the southern edge of, of Greater London. And I grew up in the Chalklands of Southern England, which is a great place to search for fossils, a beautiful rolling countryside. So I, so I had these conflicting interests and my mother used to tell a story that I would get home from school when I was, I was very little, five or six, and I, I had this little, this little wooden table that would be similar to a, to a TV table that we might, might have today. And, and she said, Jeffrey would come home and he'd sit down at his table and he, he'd pound on the table and, and, and say, I need to draw right now. Where, where's my paper? Where are my pencil and crayons? So I had this obsession with the arts, which I still do, still deeply involved in the arts. And my dad, you'll be pleased to know, my late father, Sam Notkin, was an amateur astronomer. He loved the night sky. And so I grew up in a house with a telescope and he had a 
vintage refractor, and I'd learned how to use it at a very early age. So there was there was always uh, astronomy has always been in my life, and I must say, also reading and books, particularly science books. I suppose, well, I know for a fact that a lot of the kids that I grew up with in England, they would be reading what we what we would call young adult fiction today. So they, uh, Enid Blyton was a very popular children's writer, and 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 Winnie the Pooh and the Ladybird children's guides to everything, and all these books that we loved when we were kids. But I was I didn't really fit in with that group, and you would find for my bedtime reading things like the Field Guide to Prospecting and Colin's Guide to Mushrooms and Toadstools and Geology and Astronomy books. This is my bedtime reading. So um, parents were slightly worried about me and they were always trying to get me to read adventure books. I remember my mom loved Zane Grey, the, the American Western stories. And yeah. She'd always, she'd, she'd buy me these books and she'd try to get me to read these books, fiction. And I, I just, I just wasn't interested in fiction. I wanted to read about real things and things like the Golden Wonder Book of Astronomy and books by Patrick Moore and, and other astronomers. And the Art of Chesley Bonestell was something that inspired me greatly as a kid. There was, there was both together. There, there is astronomy and geology and the art together in, in a book. So that, so those things, they all contributed. And for me, meteorites are the bridge between astronomy and geology. It's, it's, where, it's where they meet. So astronomy allows us to look at other worlds, our suns, and the, other, the astral bodies with, with which we coexist in, in the universe. And geology is the, the tangible study of the planet that we live on. And if you put the two of them together, and if you walk along that bridge and stand in the middle, that's, for me, that's where meteorites live. Oh, but I didn't really answer your question. Sorry. So, how, so visiting the museums in London was was really it for me. Was seeing seeing meteorites in real life when I was a little boy, and developing an utter fascination. I think I didn't really quite believe at first that they were real, especially in the natural well, it was the Geological Museum then. It's the Natural History Museum of London now. But there were there were several meteorites that were in the hundreds of pounds that were on pedestals. And I just stand there as a kid and look at them and go, is this a reproduction? Is this a model? Is that actually from outer space? And they just have it here and you could touch it. Those experiences of seeing meteorites in the real world after spending many evenings gazing through my father's telescope, that, that was it. But then, then I got distracted by rock and roll. I'm a musician. I, I, I worked professionally as a musician in London, Boston, and New York for many, many, many years and went to art school in New York. But always the, always the meteorites and the science were there. And then it was, it was in my 30s when I, I said, you know, I made a promise to myself as a kid that one day I was going to have a meteorite of my own. And, and I set out to make that happen. I'm a bit like a magpie. I think I see shiny things and I go, oh, shiny object must have that. And so I thought, well, I'll go and I must have a meteorite in the house. I must look at a meteorite of my own. And there was no, there was no commercial meteorite market then. I went out committed to finding my own meteorite. This was almost 30 years ago. And you also took it to the public in a really, really, really big way when you became the co-host of the TV show Meteorite Men. How did you land that role? And I have to also know what was your favorite expedition in that show? Oh, yes, with pleasure. Well, I love talking about Meteorite Men. So my co-host 
in, in the show is Steve Arnold, the great Steve Arnold. He is one of the greatest meteorite hunters of all time and a, a very close friend of mine. So in the 90s, Steve and I met in the early days of the internet. We were both, we were both tech heads and we both had email and websites very, very early. So we, we met, we decided to, to start meteorite hunting together and I commenced writing articles about our adventures for Meteorite Magazine, which was a, a non-profit magazine that was published by Dr. Joel Schiff in, in, New, in New Zealand, in Auckland for many years, a wonderful magazine. And so Steve and I worked together for quite a few years and from time to time people would, would contact me and say, oh, we're doing a science show, we're doing a geology show, we want to do a bit about meteorites, would you, would you be on it? And so we had, the, we had the very good fortune that Steve had made an enormous discovery in Kansas. He had revisited a famous old strewn field from the, was discovered in the 19th century called Brenham, which is home to a palisite, a meteorite that's a hybrid of stone of, of, and nickel iron, and went back to this historic site with radically new and improved equipment, giant metal detectors, and had started making incredible finds. And so he called me and went up there and we started working at the site together. So there was this, there was this amazing period of a few years where television companies would call and say, oh, we want to do a show about meteorites. What are the chances of finding a meteorite, say, in a one or two day shoot? And at any other time in my life, I would have said absolute zero. You can't go and find a meteorite in a day. That's just not going to happen, especially if cameras are following you. But we had this land lease, hundreds, thousands of acres. And we'd go out and if we were lucky and things were right sometimes in a day or a few days we'd, we'd make a good find so this happened several times we did a, an episode of the best places to find cash and treasures for travel channel with becky worley who's, we did a pilot for pbs that turned into the the, the word science show and uh, numerous others so it transpired that a producer in california in los angeles named ruth ribbon had read an article about us she as she later said you guys have crossed my radar a couple of times so she called me out of the blue and said i heard about you guys it seems very interesting your unusual life traveling the world looking for meteorites would you be interested in doing a show about your work now steve and i had very much enjoyed the the modest amount of television we'd done up till that point so of our own volition we put together a proposal we created a list of a hundred sites in the world where we could go to look for meteorites. And we rated the likelihood of finding meteorites at that site from zero to 100%. So I put all this together nicely in a PDF with some photos and the, the, this and that, buyers and whatever. And I fed it to Ruth Riven. And she, right away, I said, oh, oh yeah, we're very interested. I'll send you a proposal right away. So she called me the next day and she, she was noticeably surprised and she said, well, I was very impressed by, by how quickly you got this to me. And, and you guys seem very organized and together. And, and I thought you were just a couple of rockheads. And I said, no, we, we are just a couple of rockheads. That, that's it. But we're also very keen. And so Ruth and Steve and I and Eric Schatz, who was the executive producer, we developed the concept of the show. And always from day one, from the very beginning, the goal, the aim was to keep it real. And I'm, I'm not interested in, re in reality television. I'm not interested in, in fake adventures or planting things or uh, uh, as they call it 
in the business assisted reality. Mm -hmm. So I said to the producers, I'm very, very, very interested in doing it, but I want it to be authentic. And the, the people in my field are smart. They're, they are passionate about meteorites. And if we, not that I would anyway, but if a person were to fake a show and bury things or plant things or whatever, or find the wrong meteorite in the wrong place, people in my field will know. So we have the, we have the really good fortune to have a production company, LMNO, who shared that view. And, and the great network, Science Channel. I mean, who, who would be better than Science Channel? Right, Science exactly. Show. And we, we did the show for three seasons. We traveled all over the world. We visited 11 countries on four continents. And you asked about my favorite episodes or favorite expeditions. So my favorite episode is, is with the first one that was broadcast after the pilot, which was Buzzer Cooley and White Court. And that's when we were in Canada in the winter. And we were some of the very first people to visit the then newly discovered White Court meteorite crater in Alberta. So for me personally, that was that was my favorite because we got to ride on ATVs through the snow and <laughs> we, we, we were allowed to hunt just discovered meteorite crater, this iron meteorite crater, once in every 10 or 20 years or who knows, once in a generation maybe a new crater is discovered that still has meteorites around. Wow. We were some of the first people to go. So it was it was a breathtaking experience or a meteorite aficionado like me, plus being out there in the winter and hunting at night because it got dark at four o'clock and we just weren't willing to stop. So, so that, that was a favorite episode, but my favorite adventure, I mean, for me, nothing could beat going to Australia and, and working with the Australian Park Service and having permission to, to search for meteorites at the Henbury Crater Field, which is a national preserve in the Northern Territories in Australia and is a site that's always fascinated me there. There are 15 meteorite craters. They're right on top of each other, wow. right out in the in the red desert, and it's a it's a, it's a site that's that's important, that's known in native traditions, and the meteorites that you find there are just beautiful. But it's protected. You you can't go hunt there. Mm -hmm. We had we had exceptional permission from the Australian Park Service, and I love everything about Australia. I've I've been back since then. We spent a month in Australia and filmed two episodes back to back, Henbury and Mantra Villa. And I've done a lot of adventuring in my life, but that was full on adventuring. We were way, we were so far out that we had to take a cook, a medic and an outback survival specialist with us. We had five off-road vehicles. We were totally self-sufficient with sat phones. And the, uh, the outback survival experts that we spoke to said, if you get into trouble or you're bitten by a venomous snake, even the flying doctor can't arrive in time. Wow. So we said, well, so what should we do? And they said, just don't get bitten by a snake. And we, we were extra careful, but it was a tremendous experience. And, and your astronomy listeners will, will appreciate this. One of the things that stands out for me, we, we camped for many nights in the Mundrabilla Stroonfield, which is in the Nullarbor Plain in Western Australia, which is one of the most unlight polluted places I've ever been to. It was, was four days drive in each direction to get there from the wow. small town where we rented our vehicle. So we flew to Sydney and then we flew to, to Melbourne and then we flew to a little town and then we rented these amazing Hilux trucks that, that we loved. And then it was four days driving out, out wow. to, the, to the site. So we had to camp. There's nothing out there. There's no power. There's no hotels. There's no, not, not even the train tracks are far away. So one night we, we, had, our, we had our meal. And we're sitting around the campfire. And, and one of our Australian team knew that I loved astronomy. He goes, he goes, Jeff, come with me. I, 
I, I want to show you something. So we walked away from the from the fire and, and you walk for a minute and you're surrounded by complete blackness. And he goes, okay, close your eyes, let your eyes get adjusted to the dark and keep your back to the fire. And then we looked up and he goes, look over there to the horizon. Now look left and down. Do you see that big fuzzy thing that looks like a ball of cotton wool? And I said, yes. And he goes, that's the greater Magellanic cloud. And I said, gosh, I didn't even think you could see that with the naked eye. And he goes, it gets better than that. Now look down and there's the lesser Magellanic cloud. And you know, as an astronomer, how dark it has to be to be able to see these things. And the, the stars just like, look like someone had spray painted them in, in fluorescent paint over your head. So we've got this overhead and we're camped in a stream field. So for a meteorite nerd, it was absolutely a dream come true. Meteorite nerd, daytime, astronomy nerd, nighttime. So you just, you gotta love Australia. I, I highly recommend it for, for <laughs> astronomy and adventure and meteorite fans, it's the best. So what does it take to actually locate a meteorite? Well, you have to be a bit of a nutcase to, <laughs> to, to try to start. You need a particular mindset if, if you're going to go hunt for meteorites. Now, a few meteorites have been found by dumb luck, but it really doesn't happen very often. The majority of meteorites are found by people who, who really set out to search for them. So you, you need to be patient, you need to be determined, and you need to be optimistic. And that's the sort of an odd cocktail qualities, I think. But in a more technical way, specific way, you really need to understand what meteorites are. What do they look like? What are they made of? Where do they come from? What am I looking for? What kind of I don't think I would know. If I picked up a meteorite, I don't know that I would know that that's what I had picked up. Well, many people don't. So I will say, Vicky, that iron meteorites, which are very dense and heavy for their size, and largely composed of, of nickel and iron, seem extremely heavy for their size and are often ablated or shattered into fantastic forms. And so that's the type of meteorite that would be most easy to find by accident. It's difficult to mistake an iron meteorite when you pick one up, although pieces of bomb shrapnel, cannonballs, leftover bits and pieces from the Civil War, which I found while well, well metal detecting sometimes look like meteorites. But iron meteorites are actually account for a relatively small percentage of, of all known meteorites. So if you go out and you're hunting for meteorites, the most likely type that you would find is an ordinary chondrite, which is a stone meteorite that probably originated on the surface or in the mantle of an asteroid and found its way to Earth. So they contain the same elements as Earth rocks, but in different proportions. And it's the way meteorites behave after they get to Earth that's really key. Most meteorites are rich in iron and that iron will oxidize over time. So you're looking for rocks that have a particular color, they seem unusually heavy, and also how the internal composition is different, but that, that gets more tricky. So, so you really need to educate yourself. You really need to understand what you're looking for. And you need to understand the terrain that you're hunting in. And you need to understand the equipment that you use. Even the type of light will really affect your success. And I've been asked about this so many times. So in the history of, of Aerolite, my company, we've had tens of thousands of inquiries from people, enthusiastic inquiries, from people who've seen the show or have seen one of our presentations or read one of my books. And they, they want to do it. And who can blame them? If you're astronomy fans, you're adventure fans, you like the outdoors, you like rocks, whatever, this idea of finding something from outer space that landed by accident on Earth is pretty enticing. So 
there's no, there's no easy, there's no simple answer. Like I cannot tell you in one sentence how to find meteorites. So I realized there was a need for this information. So I, I wrote the book on the subject in, in 2012. I wrote a guide to meteorite hunting. It's been very successful, popular. It won an independent publishing award as one of the best science books of the year in 2012. So we recently republished it in an expanded and thoroughly revised edition called How to Find Treasure from Space, The Expert Guide to Meteorite Hunting and Identification. And, and Vicky and I have cooked up a little thing, haven't we, for listeners? Yes. Today. Go ahead and so, tell us what, we're, what you're going to do. Okay. You've made right, a very Vicky, generous so offer. Oh, my, no, it's my pleasure. So we're giving away three signed copies of this book to three listeners. And Vicky will give you the, the details of how to, how to enter, free to enter, of course. And be sure to visit her Facebook page, which is Night Sky Tourist, for details on how you could win a copy of this book. Well, Jeff, we are going to pause this conversation and we're going to pick it up again in our next episode in two weeks. So we want our listeners to stay tuned, find out more about what Jeff has to say. Jeff, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much, Vicky. I, I really enjoyed being on the show and we have, a, we have a lot of good stuff saved for the second half. So yes. see you then. Don't miss it. Thank you, Jeff, for your generous offer of three signed copies of your book, How to Find Treasure from Space, the expert guide to meteorite hunting and identification. We will give away two copies after this podcast episode airs and another copy in two weeks after part two with Jeff Notkin airs. Visit my Facebook page, Night Sky Tourist, and find the post about this episode, then like it, leave a comment about the episode, and then share the post in your Facebook feed. I'm going to select two random entries on Tuesday, July 27th at 7 o'clock p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Winners will be notified through private message on Facebook. Check out our show notes at nightskytourist.com 19, where you'll find a link to purchase this book and other books by Jeff Notkin. I love getting great night sky and astronomy-related questions from our listeners. Each question is answered by Ted Blank, a NASA Solar System Ambassador. Our first question tonight comes from the Pacific Northwest. Hi, my name is Aaron. Why are the inner planets of our solar system rocky while the outer planets are made of gas? And how does a planet form out of gas? Great question, Aaron. There are several theories. As the original solar nebula of gas and dust began to accrete into larger and larger clumps of matter, the big ball in the center got larger and larger also until it began to become the sun undergoing nuclear fusion and generating heat and light. This raised the temperature in the inner solar system to as high as 2,000 degrees Kelvin, while the temperature out in the fringes was as low as 50 degrees Kelvin. According to this theory, most of the lightweight volatile elements then boiled off the inner planets, leaving only the rocky cores. However, the search for exoplanets around other stars has discovered numerous cases where gas giants like Jupiter are orbiting as close to their star as Mercury does to our Sun. So the only answer I can offer at this time is that we really still don't understand the finer points of how our solar system formed. 
Aaron, I'm glad you asked this question because the idea of a planet without a solid surface always perplexed me. But the thing I love about Ted's answer is that scientists still wonder about this too. There's never a dull moment for astronomers. Our next question comes from the Southwest. Hi, my name is Lisa and I live in Arizona. I know that the sun rises exactly due east on the equinoxes. Is it exactly due east no matter how far north or south you live on the planet? Thanks for the question, Lisa. Yes, the sun rises due east on the spring and fall equinoxes. This is true no matter at which latitude you live. If you install the free planetarium software called Stellarium, which is available for Windows and Mac OS, you can change your location and the date and time and confirm for yourself that the sun is rising in the east regardless of your latitude. I just did this experiment with Phoenix, Arizona and Quito, Ecuador and confirmed it. You can also likely replicate this on a smartphone app like Sky Safari and many others. Lisa, I like this question because it shows how large we think our planet is. But Ted's answer shows us that the sun is so far away that no matter where we go on the planet, the sun still rises due east. Thank you, Aaron and Lisa, for your questions. If you have a question for our podcast, please record a voice memo and email it to us at nightskytourist at gmail.com. You can also visit nightskytourist.com slash podcast for more details and tips on how to send it. It's time for our tour across the night sky. Pause the podcast, gather everybody in your house, and I'll meet you outside under the stars. In our last episode, I promised to share some fun stuff about the constellation Sagittarius. So let's start by finding it. You're going to face south. And if you're directionally challenged, just use your smartphone. It probably is equipped with a compass. If you're doing your stargazing around 10 p.m., you're going to find Sagittarius almost directly to the south. It will be sitting just above the horizon, so you won't really need to tilt your head up very much. The easiest way for me to find Sagittarius is by looking for what looks like a teapot with a pointed lid. Can you see it? The stars of the teapot are fairly bright, but if you're having trouble spotting it, shift your eyes just a bit toward the southwestern horizon to find Scorpius. It's that enormous scorpion that rises up from the horizon. Sagittarius is just east of the curved tail of the scorpion. Sagittarius is actually much larger than just this teapot because the full constellation actually represents a centaur, half horse, half man of Greek mythology. The rest of the stars are somewhat faint, so if you have any light pollution, you might need to use a star app to help you locate the rest of the constellation. The Latin word Sagittarius means archer, and indeed the Greeks saw a centaur with a bow and arrow ready to strike the heart of the scorpion. And we learned in episode 17 that the red star in Scorpius is the star Antares, and it is the heart of the scorpion. In Greek mythology, Sagittarius was known as Chiron. Chiron's mother was a nymph and his father was the titan Cronus when he had actually taken on the form of a horse. 
So when Chiron was born half horse and half man, his parents abandoned him in disgust. And so he was adopted by the god Apollo. And Apollo and his sister Artemis taught Chiron music, archery, and medicine. And he became the chief among centaurs. And he served as a wise and a just teacher. According to some versions of the myth, Chiron was accidentally shot with a poisoned arrow. And since he was immortal, he did not die. But although he was a healer, he could not heal himself. So he chose to become immortal and take the place of Prometheus, who had actually been eternally punished by the gods for giving fire to men. When Zeus, Chiron's half-brother, saw this sacrifice, he placed the image of the centaur in the sky. Now, some see the southern constellation, Centaurus, as the representation of this myth, but others see it as Sagittarius. Let's identify a few more things in tonight's sky. Turn towards the north and look directly overhead and then slightly toward the east. You'll see a really bright star, and that is the star Vega in the constellation Lyra. Now look for another bright star farther toward the north and east. That is Deneb in the constellation Cygnus, the swan. Now shift your eyes toward the south a little way to find a third bright star. That is Altair in the constellation Aquila. Now, if you connect these three bright stars together, they make a really tall triangle, and astronomers call this the Summer Triangle. We learned about Deneb in the Swan Constellation of Cygnus in our last episode, so if you haven't heard it yet, be sure to check it out. Now draw an imaginary line from Deneb in Cygnus down to the spot of the teapot that makes up Sagittarius. If you're in a dark enough location, you're going to be able to see the Milky Way stretched across your imaginary line. But if you're like 80% of the people on this planet, unfortunately, light pollution is going to wipe out your ability to see the Milky Way at all. Before we wrap up tonight's star tour, let's do some planet hunting. Unfortunately, we've lost Mars from the evening sky for now. The next time we're going to be able to see it will be at dawn in late November. Venus, however, is a bright spectacle in the western sky. It is so bright that people often mistake it for a nearby airplane until they realize it's not moving. Venus is really close to Regulus right now, which is the bright star at the bottom of the sickle of the constellation Leo. If you're stargazing after about 10 p.m., then look toward the eastern horizon. Can you see that really bright star? That is Saturn, and it has finally returned to our night sky. Now, if you wait for another hour, you're going to see Jupiter rise on the eastern horizon, too. If you're a night owl or an extremely early bird, of which I am neither, you can see Jupiter and Saturn directly overhead. And this is a great time to look at these two gas giants through a telescope. Don't miss our next star tour when we learn about the amazing Perseid meteor shower coming up in August. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tours podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tours podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. 
Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the monthly newsletter for exclusive content. Click on the podcast tab to find instructions for submitting your question for a future episode. Thank you to Jeff Notkin for sharing with us about meteorite hunting. And be sure that you don't miss our next episode for part two of his interview. Check out our show notes for links to important resources at nightskytourist.com slash 19. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up. Thank you.